0: And welcome to a very special bonus episode of Real Life Ghost Stories. For today's episode, I am joined by the godfather of paranormal podcasting, Jim Harold. Having begun podcasting on the paranormal in 2005, Jim Harold is among a handful of pioneers of the medium. His programs have stood the test of time, and the Paranormal Podcast and Campfire remain among the most popular in the genre. Jim has developed a loyal following that spans the globe. In addition to his free podcasts at JimHarold.com, Jim also hosts a series of premium podcasts on the supernatural and related subjects at JimHaroldPlus.com. As a result, he has also become a published author with his Campfire series. The first book was originally published by traditional publisher New Page Books, and since then, Jim has taken the books independent. All five books are available in ebook and paper book at jimharoldbooks.com and via Amazon. And all five books in the series have been number one supernatural bestsellers on Kindle at various times. Both of Jim's flagship programs have reached the top 100 of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, in the past across all categories. Jim's podcasts have been downloaded over 60 million times. All of the links will be in the description of this episode. So let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of Real Life Ghost Stories because I am joined by the wonderful, the outstanding, the amazing Jim Harold. Jim, thank you so much for being here.
1: Well, Emma, thank you so much. For inviting me, and you told me a great story on the campfire, a banshee story, and so glad to get to visit with you and your audience and, and talk about spooky stuff.
0: So, Jim, for those who don't know who are listening, tell us who you are and what it is that you do.
1: I am a full-time professional podcaster, podcasting on the paranormal for the most part, and I've been doing it since two thousand five. Probably my two most best-known shows are Jim Harold's campfire, which is true stories of the supernatural is submitted by listeners. And that's been around since 2009. And then the paranormal podcast where I interview authors and experts about the paranormal, that one's been around since 2005. So I'm very blessed and very lucky to do this and just still as fascinated today uh, as when I first started almost 18 years ago now.
0: It blows my mind that you've been doing this for 18 years. Like you, you were the OG paranormal podcaster for sure. And like going back to the very, very beginning, back to 2005 when you just started out with all of this, what sparked your interest in the paranormal?
1: Well, it really goes back to my childhood. When I was a very little kid in elementary school, there was this TV show called In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy here in America and syndicated and I watched it religiously every week it, on my channel. It was a different place, I think, in every market, different time. But it was Sunday nights at seven o'clock and uh, I never missed it. And it introduced me to the idea of ghosts and cryptids and UFOs and just plain old mysteries, things like the Bermuda Triangle. And ever since then, it's always been in my head. Plus, there's a couple of interesting, I think, family stories around the paranormal that we have. And uh, so in 2005, when I was looking to start podcasting, I said, well, I got to find a topic that I'm truly interested in. And I'm not going to add anything to politics, music you can't really do effectively on a a podcast, sports. I'm not going to add anything. I said, but the paranormal, there's not. I think there were some, I will say, I don't, I was not the first paranormal podcast. I do think I have the longest continuously running paranormal podcast. I think there were some people dabbling in it before me, but I think in terms of people still doing it today, I think I was first by just a few months. So I said, paranormal is the way I'm going to go. And Emma, I said, you know, I'm going to do this for six months. I'm going to have this all figured out (laughs) and I'm going to have all the answers. And guess what? I've got more questions than I did when I started in the summer of 2005.
0: I love that your interest was sparked by a Sunday night TV show. And I'm sure there's lots of people listening who will remember that TV show and go, oh, I was also obsessed, you know. Mm -hmm. Was there a particular topic that was covered on that TV show that still lives rent-free in your brain to this day?
1: Well, one that comes to mind, I mentioned it, 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 I associate it with so much. And I don't know that I'm quite as, Interested now, but the Bermuda Triangle. Mo is like, what is up with that? The one that I think has stuck with me the most, though, and is the one, Emma. If people say, "Well, what interests you the most? What if you could only answer one part of the paranormal? What would it be?" And to me, the answer is obvious: the afterlife. Because we might not all see a Bigfoot, we may not all see a UFO, uh, we might not even all see a ghost, but eventually. In the words of that old spiritual, we're all going to have to walk that lonesome valley Mm. and uh, go through the death process, whether that's, uh, you know, we're truly dead and gone and that's it, or whether it's just like walking into another room, as I've heard it described by many people. I personally think it's more like that walking into another room. That's my bias. That's my belief. And it's only been strengthened over the years. But that's the one that really sticks with me the most, the afterlife
0: yeah it's it's a fundamental facet of life isn't it death so and i do think that the paranormal and death are just intrinsically linked and for a lot of people a paran- the paranormal is actually just an ex- exploration of death and what death really means so i'm i'm as a podcaster and i've i've only been doing this full time for 2 years now and i'm fascinated by the medium of podcasting Why did you choose to start a podcast specifically all those years ago? What was it about podcasting that appealed to you?
1: Well, it was the ability to do it myself. My background was I had gone to school for broadcasting, mainly television, actually. And this was I got out of college in the early 90s. Now, back then, that's where before the Internet really took hold um so it was kind of like well get a job wherever you can and so i got a job at a radio station just as like a clerical assistant basically just to get into the business and then i made a left instead of a right and ended up on the advertising side and you know 12 years later i've got a wife i've got two kids i've got a mortgage It's not like I could quit my job and go to a small town in America and start all over and do radio or TV. But it almost frustrated me that I wasn't in front of the mic or in front of the camera because I always thought that I could pull it off. So I heard about this thing called podcasting. I was listening to uh, a tech podcaster still going strong today. One of the real OGs of podcasting, uh, Leo Laporte. And he was saying, oh, people are doing this at home. And I'm like, and I'd listen to Leo and some other, um, you know, uh, people like Adam Curry and things who, you know, died in the wool, great podcasters, like, I can't do that. And then I listened to some of the homemade ones and I'm like, but I can do that. <laughs> and I started off with, a, I think, a $50 headset and a really crappy windows computer and uh, just dabbled uh, for a while, got really serious in 2008. Uh, and then as time went on, It just seemed to take hold, but it appealed to me because I could do it. And honestly, Emma, I don't know if it was like this for you, but at first when I did it, I didn't even think of the possibility of making money. I thought it was just a neat hobby. I thought, oh, how am I going to explain to my wife this $20 that's coming out of our account every month? That's kind of what I looked at. The idea that this could actually turn into a full-time job is flabbergasting to me. And I've been full-time, gosh. What will it be now? It will be eleven years in June, and I'm still amazed uh, by that and very grateful for it. But um, the show seemed to catch on, and uh, again, I'm I'm very blessed to have that opportunity.
0: So I've got a have kind of got a big question for you now, which is links to your previous answer. Why do you think that Campfire and Paranormal Podcast have stood the test of time and remained so incredibly popular? Because podcasts come and go and trends come and go for sure, but you've remained steady. Why is that?
1: I think you just said the answer, remaining steady, remaining consistent. And I've had shows that I have started and that I've ended because they didn't do as well actually restarting a true crime show. Our our true crime show came out in 2011, which was before the big true crime craze. Yeah. But I made it into my premium club, which is a huge mistake. Probably my biggest mistake during the the podcasting time that I've done. And who knows where that would have been had I started as a free podcast. So that was a mistake on my part. The point is I'm not successful with everything I do, but those two shows um, I think it's number one is just consistency. It's always there. And, you know, a lot of times people want to change everything. And I think that part of the appeal of those shows, they don't change. Uh, and their audience knows what they're going to get when they tune in. Now, it's not for everybody. And some people say, "Ah, oh, this is not, you know, uh, not for me. Uh, but the people who it resonates with, they know, you know, they can tune in. Uh, and, and I kind of like in that, um, you know, in America, we have a show, a game show called The Price is Right. Mm-hmm. And it was like um, for people my age and, and younger, um, it was kind of a cultural touchstone. Everything else in life would be changing, but you knew you could tune in every day at 11 o'clock and see the, the, the host. Bob Barker is his name. And he's still alive. He's 99 years old, not hosting anymore. But for decades, for probably about 40 years, you could tune in and he would be there every day. And it was just like he became your friend, Bob. And so kind of the way I view um, those shows is I'm your paranormal friend, Jim, and I'm interested just like you are. And I'm always going to be there. You know, uh, again, God willing and, uh, you know, knock on wood, the whole uh, health holds out. I figure I got at least another 15 years in me. (laughs) So but my point is, um, in terms of doing the shows, I'm in my early 50s. So I'm not, you know, not that old. So I I definitely think uh, it's something I could see myself doing up to 65 75 uh, 70 years old. So I guess my point being that I've just always been there. People know what to expect. Uh I try to give a professional, consistent, reliable product and The fact that I think people sense there's a sincerity with me. I'm really interested in this stuff. I've always been interested in this stuff. It's not like, oh, I saw the paranormal TV shows were popular, so I decided to start a paranormal podcast. No, I started because when thinking about podcasting, of all the topics that I could think of, it was the one that I thought would keep me interested for the longest amount of time and would keep me consistent. And honestly, (laughs) I thought it would, but I didn't think it would be 18 (laughs) years. but hey, I'm glad.
0: So if you could go back, and I, I promise we'll get onto paranormal questions again in a second, but if you could go back to the very beginning of your journey, is there anything that you would change or do differently, aside from what you just said about the true crime show and putting it behind the the premium content? Is is there anything that you'd do differently?
1: I think I would have started to be more consistent earlier, because between 2005 and 2008, I kind of dabbled. I put out a show and then I put out a show in three months and two months, you know, and then not until 2008, I said, um, well, I can tell you what happened it was kind of interesting. At least it is to me. I was sitting at uh, over in the States. Uh, kids have something called T-ball, which is like our baseball, but they bat the ball off of a T. And being the good father I was, I was there, but I was listening to a podcast and I'll never forget it was Dan Carlin. Who did hardcore history? And this was 2008. And he's still going strong today. One of the greatest podcasters ever, Hall of Famer. But anyway, um, he had a spot, a commercial from Audible. And I had just recently started a job in my radio career for a big conglomerate over here. I thought, oh, this is going to be the job that puts me over the top. And this is going to be set me off to a great career in management and radio. And then I've been there for five or six months. And I decide, you know what, this is a good job, but this is not going to be my career. I can see this right now. And I was listening to Dan Carlin and I said, you know what, what am I doing? I'm beating my head against the wall at this job and people are emailing me clamoring for more episodes. You know, I'm not the brightest guy, but I need to get consistent with this show and I'll give it six months and see what happens. And, um, I think that sixth month I got my first sponsor, which happened to be Audible. Oh, uh, they approached me. Eight. And I thought that was the sign from the universe. That was yeah. the sign. I'm still an Audible member today, even though they don't advertise with me anymore. Uh, they used to do a ton of podcast advertising. But the point being that I wish I had started more consistently earlier even. And I wish that I would have started Campfire earlier because I didn't start Campfire to 2009 which was basically because one week I didn't have a guest for paranormal podcast. So I said, Oh, wouldn't it be interesting just to get caller stories and I could tell from the reaction, I'm like, Whoa, there's something here. This is a totally different podcast. So those, those, those are are probably the three things I would change one, be more consistent earlier, start campfire earlier. And then the true crime piece, those are the three things where I think I kind of, Kind of dropped the ball a little bit, but you know, hindsight is 20, twenty I'm fortunate. I got in when I did. I think that's a big reason for the success too. I had the first, ava- uh, first mover advantage. I think that's really important too.
0: So what, in your opinion, what is the the toughest thing about being a full-time podcaster and conversely, then what's the best thing about being a full-time podcaster?
1: Well, the toughest thing I think is if it's your full-time job, you cannot miss. You know, or you do miss a week, you have to plan for it. You have to either use, uh, you know, repurposed content, classic content. I'm fortunate I have uh, done well over 2,000 episodes of my various shows. So I have a lot to choose from. Uh, But it's very hard. I mean, for example, just this past holiday season, I took about 10 days off. Now, granted, during those 10 days, I probably worked seven or eight hours because I still had to do certain things. And I have some help. I have a great virtual assistant and assistant producer who does a great job. But in the end, when you're truly independent, it is on you. So I still ended up working a few hours over that time. But to do that, I had to work two, three, four weeks ahead of time, double recording, yeah. double editing, even though I've got some editors who helped me out now just recently added that on. But the point is, is that it's on you. But That's also the benefit. It's on you. I remember the frustration when I used to work in radio and I would go and I would tell some muckety muck, either locally or nationally, some great idea or what I thought was a great idea. And they would be, you know, they would pat me on the head and said, that's nice. How many ads have you sold today? Yeah. I knew I had good ideas. And to not have those recognized or utilized or acted upon. And in fact, I told a huge radio conglomerate in the U.S., their their internet management, back in probably 2009 or 2010, you really need to jump on this podcasting thing. It's going to be huge. And uh, it was crickets. There was no reaction in the conference call. And now all the big radio companies are tripping over themselves about podcasting. Yeah. So it was so annoying to me. And that's what I love about this because, uh, you know, I, every year I look at what I do and I say, okay, these things work. These things didn't let's try these four or five different things. Typically what happens is if I try six new things, two will work. And it could be something behind the scenes. It could be something in front of the scenes, but every year I do that. That's why I kind of, I used to hate the new year. Now I like the new year because, um, I, I do that. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a different sort of situation, but I love the independence. It's all on you, but it's all on you. So I guess those are the negatives and the positives.
0: That's such a lovely way to put it. It's all on you, but it's all on you because it is such a double edged sword. And I and I think that, you know, you sort of I had this perception that if I was podcasting full time, I'd have a lovely I'd have loads of time off and I'd just be swanning <laughs> around. But actually what happens is you end up working all the time. <laughs> Yeah, And you don't realize that that's what it's going to be like. But I've got I've got a very important question, probably the most important question that I ask all of my guests. What is your favorite scary movie and why?
1: You know, I think this has changed over the years because my top three I'll give you are probably The Exorcist, The Shining and Rosemary's Baby.
0: Interesting.
1: And you can you can see a thread running through those, I'm assuming that they're psychologically based more than Blood and Guts. And for example, I, I think right now, and this does change probably every year or two, but I think right now, Rosemary's Baby, because you watch that movie and I don't know, I'm assuming you've seen it. Yes, I've seen uh, them all three. I don't know how you feel, but through the whole movie, I feel um, unease, like there's something awful and sinister and you know what's coming and you know what it's all about. The Omen has that too. Yes. and. I like that a lot in a movie because you really feel you're kind of tapping into something pretty dark. And not that you know, not that I'm doing any uh masses or anything <laughs> like that i'm not dressing in robes and calling there's up no Lucifer there's no judgment here jim no no i i don't do that uh, <laughs> i assure you but when you're watching it's like there's really something evil here you know heredity uh was a very good movie i saw not too long ago but those classics and particularly rosemary's baby the exorcist and the shining and honorable right. mention to the omen those are those are probably my top ones
0: interestingly i i've watched kind of all of those films recently. And Rosemary's Baby and The Shining were films that I saw for the first time recently. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't didn't see them when I was kids, but The Exorcist I saw when I was a kid and it absolutely traumatised me, especially being Irish Catholic. I was like, oh no, this is is the only thing that's going to happen to me now after I've seen this film. Um, But Rosemary's Baby in particular, I loved it because... It was like exactly as you said, there was just this sense of dread the entire way through. And I knew kind of bits and pieces about the film, but I didn't know the story. Whereas right. The Shining, I knew I knew exactly what was going right. to happen. Like, Pretty much I'd seen the whole film because of pop culture. Um, but Rosemary's Baby blew my mind. I thought it was absolutely outstanding because I felt it the whole way through. It was just a stunning piece of cinema. It was great.
1: And the interesting thing about both The Omen and Rosemary's Baby is that in some ways they were considered cursed films. Yes. Because weird things happened to people in both of those movies. Uh, And uh, up and including people dying. Yes. So I encourage if anybody is a bit of a film buff, look that up because that makes you think, Ooh, maybe they really weren't into something sinister. there uh totally accidentally. Uh, there was but,
0: definitely stuff that happened on the set of the exorcist as well, like strange fires. And there was, there was mm-hmm. a lot of weird stuff yep. that surrounded the exorcist too.
1: Yeah. So it, it does, it does give one pause, but great movies, great movies. And really, I mean, uh, You know, just just uh, just fantastic movies, and and to me, that's scarier than something like Saw or something like that. Because those kind of movies, you know, it's special effects. I mean, it's gory, it's like kind of thing. But you know, it's special effects. These kind of movies make you wonder, ooh, you know, knowing that history, you know, what did they tap into?
0: So you've done this now for almost eighteen years. Eighteen years of telling ghost stories and listening to ghost stories. Is there a particular story that you have heard in that 18 years that has stuck with you and really, truly scared you?
1: Well, I got to tell you, it's not a traditional ghost story, but the one that stuck with me and made the greatest impression. And I've told this probably, I guess I've told this story at least a couple hundred times. In fact, I feel badly. The Storyteller, (laughs) I've told it so many times, but I I will share it. It's uh, about the Roadhouse Saloon, and it's really like something out of the Twilight Zone. Uh, And I felt so strongly about it that in 2019, pre-pandemic, I went, uh, I live in the American state of Ohio in the Midwest. I went up north uh, probably about three hours and met the storyteller and we did a video segment with her, which is on my YouTube channel and uh, had her do a longer form version of the story. And the thing is, is that very respected professional and a very respected profession retired now, I believe. But honestly, I felt more convinced of the story than ever. And I believe her more than ever. I say that because it is just so incredible. So anyway, what happened was, is that, and her name is T I, uh, she lives in the American state of Michigan, but, um, was up in Wisconsin and, uh, which is even more kind of Northwest, uh, to Michigan. I don't know if I've got my, uh, geography right, but it's west of Michigan. So it's one state over. She was visiting a, um, kind of like a campground or something. She went to every year, I guess her and her family. And her and a male friend went about an hour away to see a band play. And it was in a rural area as well. And they watched the whole band. Now here in the States, bars usually close at two o'clock. And most of the time, uh, it's illegal uh, to have them open any later. There's very specific laws about that. So anyway, they stayed till two. And they actually stayed a little bit longer talking to the band because they were musicians and they were kind of, kind of uh, chewing uh, chewing the fat, as they say. So anyway, um, they start to head back to the campground. They're about an hour away. They're in a very rural area, very dark two-lane roads, that kind of thing. And T.I. says to Bob, her friend, I've got to go to the restroom. And uh, Bob says, well, maybe you can pull up a tree somewhere because... There isn't anything out of here. And she said, no, just drive fast. So they go a little way on and they see uh, at this crossroads, a bar that is open, which doesn't make a lot of sense because they are all supposed to legally be closed. But they say, hey, they're open. So let's go in. So it's full of parking, uh, full of cars in the parking lot. The neon's on. You can hear the music playing. They pull up, they go in. Bob goes to the bar to get a soft drink or something. T.I. goes to the restroom. They come back and Bob mentions, oh, I'm glad we're here because see that painting up on the wall there, that mural, it's like an old West scene with cowboys and in his saloon. And I've always heard about this, but I've never seen it. And, uh, he said, I've heard about, I've always wanted to see, and I'm so glad we stopped. This turned out to be pretty cool. And he noticed, they noticed that the people in there were kind of like spaced out a little bit, kind of like smiling with kind of blank stares, those kind of things. They just, some seemed a little off. So anyway, in the corner, they had this beautiful Wurlitzer jukebox, kind of a bubbler jukebox with vinyl on it, records, which, you know, at the time of this, I think this must have been the nineties, I'm guessing. You didn't see anymore. By that time, everything had gone over to CDs, and now it's coming back the other way. But um, somebody played Chubby Checkers Let's Twist again, and the guy walked up to T.I., smiled, had a mouthful of rotten teeth, and asked her to wow. dance. And T.I. says, no, no, I, I, I don't wanna dance. And she held up, she uses a cane, and she showed him the cane, and uh, she said she's really glad she had that cane that night to <laughs> kind of beg <laughs> off of dancing. So anyway, uh they're looking around and they notice that the people in the bar look like the people in the mural. Like there's a guy sitting over here, he's in the mural. There's a couple of guys playing pool, billiards. They're playing cards in the picture. The bartender is another guy. There's a woman in the bar and she's in the picture is what they used to call me back in the day, a dance hall girl. So It's kind of weird, but they thought, oh, well, that makes sense. These are regulars, and this is some kind of homage to them. So they didn't think any more about that. So anyway, they're talking and talking, and they look, and they notice there's this double doors where, in the old Western movies, the cowboy would come in and say, I want to see so-and-so. I want a showdown, if you can picture that. But they noticed something in the mural they didn't notice before. There were two columns of mist, and one was a little taller, and one was a little shorter. They hadn't noticed that before. And they talk some more and look back and it's developing like an old Polaroid picture, almost into a humanoid, two humanoid figures. And they look a little more and one seems to be a man and one seems to be a woman. And the one that looks like it's a woman has curly hair and boots and T.I. has curly hair and boots, but it really hit home when they saw the cane. (gasps) And then they said, let's get out of here. They get up to go out. The people are kind of motioning back, blankly, smiling, like, come back, come back. They close the door. Everything goes pitch black, dark, and silent, like it was never open. They look. There's one car in the parking lot, their car. So they leave. Story's not over yet. T.I.I. is a lot braver than I am. So she decides, I'm going to go back and see what this is all about. What happened? Did we get almost caught in some kind of portal? What's going on? So she goes back to the bar, I think either with a sister or friend, I can't remember which, a couple nights later, about eight o'clock at night. She didn't wait till two o'clock in the morning. And uh, she goes and looks at the jukebox. There's a jukebox there, but it's not a Wurlitzer. It's a modern CD jukebox and no chubby checker on it. She walks over to the bar and talks to the bartender, a young woman. And T.I. says, oh, I was in here the other night. There was a bartender, a big strapping, big, good looking guy. And, uh, she said, well, that's odd. The only two people who tend bar here are me and my elderly father. And with that T.I. left and she never came back again. Now there's one other piece to this. The place actually exists. I have pictures and they're in that video on my YouTube channel. Uh, Chad Lewis, the great researcher and author of uh, cryptids and those sorts of things, who's from that part of the country, went and took pictures of it. Now, I know as of 2019, it was open. I don't know what the status is now. I tried to call them, try to get in contact with the management and the owners. Nobody called me back. But the place does exist. So make of that what you will. I think that is the most memorable, incredible campfire story we've ever had. And we've had some great ones, but that's one that always sticks with me.
0: And you said that when you went to meet her, you were even more convinced of the story. Yes. Wow. Because, you know, you you, I think you have the same stance as I do when I listen to people's stories, when I tell people's stories There is no judgment. I never, I never, I never say, well, that's not true or that didn't happen or, you know, whatever. Because that's not my place to do that. People are telling their stories because they need a space to tell their stories. And that's, and we're there to listen and be non-judgmental. But I think I would, I'd find it really, I'd find my own sense of what I believe really shook if I went to meet that person and I walked away going, I even more so believe that story. So what does that mean?
1: (laughs) And I think that does the one thing that I think I've taken out of all this because I don't have an explanation and to take it full circle from the beginning of the interview, I don't have the answers that six months has turned into 18 years almost. And I still don't have those answers. But the one thing I do believe reality is far stranger than we understand. And then it seems to be on the surface level. I think it goes much, much deeper. I think that can go into things like multiverse time slips life after death i think it's all a part of the picture and we just see a sliver of what reality really is
0: speaking of reality being not what it seems my last question for you i am a cryptid gal i love cryptids i love cryptid stories who or what is your favorite cryptid
1: I don't have one in particular, but I do, uh, the sea monsters appeal to me because I think that's very plausible and real. Bigfoot, I tend to be 50-50 on. One day I'll say, yeah, I think that makes sense. There's people of goodwill who have reported it. That Patterson-Gimlin film from 1967, if you look at the stabilized version, does not look like a suit, looks like there's muscle tone. The next day I'll say they haven't found hair, they haven't found DNA. Yep. Where are the bodies. Yeah. Exactly. So, and I know there's explanation. Nature takes care of its own. I know the explanations. But that one I, I vacillate on back and forth, honestly, and I say this on my shows. But in terms of sea creatures, Loch Ness Monster, those kind of things, I totally believe that's real because we know less about the deep sea and ocean floor than we know about space. I've heard scientists say that. So to me, it makes sense that there are creepy, cryptid creatures beneath the water that we don't understand. So I believe in those
0: 110%. I will recommend that if you ever get the chance to go to Loch Ness, 1000% yeah, go.
1: That would be awesome.
0: It is amazing. And if you already believe in the Loch Ness Monster, you will twice believe twice as hard if you visit Loch Ness, for sure. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Jim, thank you so much for coming on and chatting to me today. Where can people find you if they want to listen to your podcasts?
1: Well, they can find Jim Harold's Campfire and all of my podcasts and all the major podcast apps. It's J I M H A R O L D, Jim Harold. And of course, they could go to my website at com. And Emma, thank you and your great audience. I appreciate it so much.